Recording from the Sunshine City, St. Petersburg, Florida, overlooking beautiful Tampa Bay, this is the Sonography Lounge, sponsored by Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute. This podcast is dedicated to medical professionals and patients around the world interested in diagnostic and interventional ultrasound. Our podcast will discuss everything ultrasound, from news, trends, career paths, new technology, and industry updates. Hosted by Lori Green and Tricia Rio of Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute, they bring over four decades of experience in the ultrasound profession and are here to guide you through this journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sonography Lounge, sponsored by Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute, where we discuss all things ultrasound. I'm Lori Green, and I will be co-hosting today's episode with Trisha Rio. Hey, hey everyone. Tr- hey, Trisha. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Awesome. Today's topic is part of our point of care series, and we're going to be talking about MSK ultrasound, some arthritis, and various treatment options for osteoarthritis. So, Trisha, you know, osteoarthritis, especially of the knee, is quite prevalent, and in many cases causes limitation in movement, decreased activity levels, along with substantial pain. I, for one, can... uh, attest to that. And uh, what we've seen is that MSK ultrasound has rapidly expanded across multiple specialty groups for both diagnostic and interventional applications. And medical providers that we've worked with over the years in MSK ultrasound and who are currently utilizing ultrasound in the clinical setting consider ultrasound the first choice in imaging for evaluating and monitoring osteoarthritis. So in today's episode, we're going to focus on the use of ultrasound in the diagnosis of knee osteoarthritis along with non-surgical treatment options utilizing ultrasound guidance. So we're very excited to have with us Dr. Timothy Mazzola, who is triple board certified in family medicine, sports medicine, and musculoskeletal ultrasound. His practice is a non-operative regenerative orthopedic and sports medicine specialist at Breakthrough Regenerative Orthopedics in Boulder, Colorado. So welcome, Dr. Mazzola. Thank you, Lori and Teresa. It's good to be with you both. So happy to have you here. And so why don't we just get started off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your practice, and and your decision to utilize uh, ultrasound in your clinical practice. Sure thing. Thanks. Uh, Thanks again for having me, and thanks for that great question. Um, I would say that, yeah, my practice is a non-surgical regenerative orthopedic practice. And what I mean by that is it's uh, a practice that is orthopedics in nature, but um, we, instead of using surgical techniques to get people to feel better and more functional, we use non-surgical methods. And because of my history in family medicine and sports medicine and then um, MSK ultrasound, those are the three board certifications um, where, in fact, I helped get that certification through a registry review at Gulf Coast Ultrasound. So a little plug for you guys. Awesome. Um, <laughs> the... The reality is is that there's this huge gap between the non-surgical management of uh, orthopedic care historically and surgery. And so when, when physical therapy would end, we oftentimes were kind of left with the decision like, do I do surgery or don't I? And <clears throat> I grew up in that kind of a system as a sports medicine uh, physician. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, but, um, you know, there, the days of just using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and steroid injections, and then if that didn't work, having to move on to a large surgery, um, those, those kinds of days became frustrating for me, particularly as I got better 
with the musculoskeletal ultrasound and could see the pathology so clearly right in front of me real time. And <clears throat> so I had this kind of burning desire to be able to intervene and make a difference. And fortunately for me, around the same time I started an ultrasound back in uh, 2007, it was right around the time when articles started to come out on platelet-rich plasma for various orthopedic conditions. It started with tendons and, and such, and then it moved on to our topic today, osteoarthritis. So that's really the nature of my practice. It's using ultrasound to guide treatments to injured orthopedic parts of the body, some of which are tendons, some are ligaments, and some are arthritic joints, and even sometimes nerves that are painful and entrapped. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, you just said that about the nerves. I mean, our primary topic is on osteoarthritis. However, a variety of pathologies are commonly seen in athletes as well as the general population. Can you discuss the clinical utility and reliability of using ultrasound as an imaging technique to evaluate those various pathologies seen in the knee? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's all over the body, Tricia. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think of I think of the, the shoulder and the rotator cuff as perhaps the, um, the best imaged area in musculoskeletal ultrasound, but certainly knee arthritis is the most common kind of condition that we treat, and so it's a great topic uh, for us to, to land on. Around the knee, yes, uh, I would say that you know, the main typical uh, imaging that we would start with historically was x-ray, and then if we needed something more about the inside of the joint, we would go to MRI. And then since uh, 2007 now, I've been using ultrasound. So I'm very familiar with, with all three of those main modalities of imaging, and I would say that they're all a little different. So, you know, x-ray has its, has its advantages of just looking at the bone and the, align, the alignment, <laughs> and obviously you can pick up fractures very easily on, on x-ray, but also with ultrasound uh, and MRI for that matter. Then uh, MRI is really good historically for looking deep inside of joints, looking at soft tissue injuries such as um, meniscus tears, ligament tears, uh, particularly of the ACL, uh, but also maybe of the meniscus or the medial collateral ligament. And I would say that MRI is still stronger when it comes to looking deep inside of the joint at structures like the anterior cruciate ligament or the posterior cruciate ligament, um, or looking deep inside of a joint at the cartilage that lines the inside of that joint. And also, <clears throat> even probably still, the meniscus is, is better visualized uh, three-dimensionally with, with the MRI, but just barely over ultrasound. And x-ray is almost useless for that. So um, ultrasound has really come along in its ability to look at those harder things to view. But the thing that it, it just shines with, and I think is superior to either x-ray or MRI, is the, the quadricep tendon or the patellar tendon, the medial collateral ligament, the, the lateral collateral ligament. Um, certainly, we can see inside of the joint and we can see a fluid and we can even see little pieces of cartilage or chondral debris when someone has arthritis floating around in the joint. And so it's really, um, in my practice, become invaluable for not only uh, assessing, but even more so for treating uh, knee osteoarthritis. As far as your question about you know, assessing and being able to evaluate, I think that's the best, that's the best tool for looking at what, what I call chondral debris or you know, little flecks of injured cartilage inside of the joint. Um, you can't really see that easily on x-ray or MRI. And so that's helpful. But it's it's definitely complementary, I would say, to MRI, and, and particularly in the case of osteoarthritis, for the simple reason that you can see deep inside the joint with MRI better, and you can see inside of the bone 
which is a limitation of the ultrasound where you can't see inside of the bone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That awesome. makes sense. Well, you definitely had the benefit with the ultrasound with uh, as far as cost, um, cost effectiveness and the, the ability to have immediate feedback right mm-hmm. there at the bedside so that you can determine um, if other uh, imaging may be necessary or whether you can move right on to your uh, options of of treatment and um, also the maybe not so much in a knee, but in other areas where you can um Maneuver, have the patient go through a range of movements that you can't do in MRI, you know, dynamic in imaging. So um, those are all things that definitely can benefit, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure it's a patient yeah, satisfier, right, to, for them to see you do the ultrasound and to describe what you're seeing pathologically. I'm sure that brings them a lot of comfort and confidence in you. Yeah, that's a really good point you're bringing up. I think that patient satisfaction is exquisitely high. When using musculoskeletal ultrasound real time in the room, I have a large TV screen on the wall that they usually are looking at with me. I can, you know, drop the arrow over the pathology and they can say, oh, yeah, I can see that. And then if you do drop a needle in there, they can see your needle and they can see exactly what you're numbing up or treating. And, um, and they get instant feedback, you know, whereas if you do have an MRI, you have to go lay in a tube for a while and that can be uncomfortable and suffocating a little bit in your knee. <laughs> um, and then... And then uh, you have to wait a bit to hear back. And it's certainly not dynamic, right? You, mm-hmm. can't, you can't have somebody in there moving your joint. It just can't do that. And you, you cannot do MRI-guided injections um, real-time either. So those are distinct, um, I would say, limitations of MRI or, and or strengths of ultrasound. It's really unique in, in all of orthopedics um, in its ability to not only be diagnostic but also to guide treatment. So, yeah, really uh, I would say a game changer for my practice, no doubt. With, without ultrasound, <laughs> I don't think that at my practice and my patients would be would be being as well served as they are. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. I, I like to say a lot of times when I when a patient who stumbles into my office who has been in pain for five or ten years and they've defied every kind of surgeon and other pain doctor out there. And then we, we do the examination. We think we know what we're dealing with. We do the ultrasound. We drop it on there. And then we numb them up with an ultrasound-guided injection on what we think the pathology is. And then they're just, you know, they're smiling and they're, they can't believe it. And I like to say my phrase is ultrasound wins again. <laughs> I, like I that. love that. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Well, you know, that definitely is um, very satisfying and and gives the patient a higher level of confidence in, in uh, the treatment they're being provided when they can actually see what's going on. And, and uh, it makes a lot more sense to them because many people don't really understand, you know, what the different types of pathology are. And they're just basically kind of going by what whatever the doctor tells them. And so if they've gone through a process of various failures of different type of treatment options, and then they come in and you can actually see what's going on and then see how the treatment is going. And then uh, from a monitoring standpoint to, to actually see and feel the difference, that's, that's huge. That's a huge um, benefit to the patient. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And so that's a perfect segue into my next um, question, because I know you're in your practice, you uh, incorporate a lot of regenerative medicine techniques so that you can offer non-surgical treatment options for not only arthritis, but other types of pathologies. And um, so can you uh, outline for us some of those options that the patients may have um, specific to knee um, arthritis? 
Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, it's a very well studied area, just because knee arthritis is so common, and um, the data is is strong in knee arthritis for regenerative treatments. I would say, um, but it's not complete. And when I say strong, what I mean is it's it's built a, a quite <laughs> excuse me quite a body of evidence over the last number of years. So um, just to review, I would say I'll try and stay with you know what the evidence shows us, and that's a that's a talk that I that I like to give, and, and and it's always having to be updated every year. There's new studies and new information that's coming out. So, um, I would say the least in the least inflammatory or the kind of the lowest strength of regenerative treatment is considered dextrose, which is sugar from corn, and that's dextrose prolotherapy. Historically, prolo stands for proliferative, and therapy is rather obvious and. It's been used for over 80 years in various forms as an attempt to try and stabilize uh, injured tendons and ligaments. Um, initially, of course, it was unguided treatment and, and used a variety of different substances. But now we've landed on dextrose as being the safest and the best. And that has really good evidence in knee arthritis for being helpful for lowering pain and improving function long term, um, even up to two years, but does require multiple treatments, usually something like between three and six treatments are required to complete a course of dextrose prolotherapy. So that's the drawback, right? You have to come in for multiple injections, and every time you get an injection, that's always doesn't feel great. And so um, that's sort of the oldest and the most tried and true. <laughs> Excuse me, but um, there are other proliferative therapies that have since come into favor, and probably the most uh, common these days is PRP, or platelet-rich plasma. And that's where we take the patient's own blood and we um, we draw the blood and then the same visit, we um, centrifuge the blood and we isolate the cells that we want that are good for healing. Those are the platelet cells and a few of the white blood cells that are good for healing. And then we remove the cells that we don't want, which are the red blood cells and the very inflammatory white blood cells. And then once we've concentrated those platelets, then we numb up the area and then treat it, which is inside of a joint. So much better um, confirmed with ultrasound than with any other form of, uh, I would say, guided injection. So um, the reason why I like it better than any other form is that you can see all the soft tissues as the needle is advancing towards the joint. You don't have to run into anything you don't want to, such as blood vessels or nerves or uh, bones, for that matter. And so um, ultrasound-guided platelet-rich plasma injections have been studied extensively. And I would say that there's the most data on PRP for knee arthritis of any regenerative treatment for any indication. So we'll land on that one as, as the strongest level of evidence that we have of any regenerative treatment for a particular condition. And I think we're up to now six meta-analyses that have been done on platelet-rich plasma for knee osteoarthritis. And the first one, if I'm remembering right, was 2014. So we're now seven years in of meta-analysis, which is a study of studies. And in each of these meta-analyses, the same conclusion has been reached, and that is that platelet-rich plasma is effectively better than anything else that we have currently tested to inject into a knee for arthritis. And that includes corticosteroids or, you know, the steroid shots, um, the hyaluronic acid or the gel, the rooster comb shots, includes um, yeah ozone it includes saline so there's there's a lot of comparators that it's been looked at and it's consistently superior 
to everything. What, where it really has not been um, compared but in one study is to uh, bone marrow aspirate concentrate. And that would be the next that would be the next level of therapy beyond platelets. So bone marrow concentrate uh, is obtained from the patient's uh, hip bone, usually on the backside, and <clears throat> it is then concentrated, again, to remove as many red cells as possible and try and concentrate uh, the healthy cells that are in there, such as mesenchymal stem cells and platelets and um, other hemopoietic stem cells, which we are not sure of their benefit in the case of arthritis, but we know that many good things are found in the bone marrow aspirate and in its concentrate to help to treat knee arthritis. But generally, there's not as good of level of evidence of using bone marrow inside of a knee that's arthritic as there is compared to PRP. There was one study that was done by uh, a group, <laughs> excuse me, the Andrews Institute uh, down in Pensacola, and they did compare bone marrow concentrate versus platelet-rich plasma. And at two years out, they didn't see any significant difference in one group versus the other. But there were some limitations in that study in that the bone marrow concentrate in the, in the kit that they used was not doing a very good job of concentrating the stem cells. And so there, there are other um, better ways of concentrating those cells, which we think, although we don't know for sure, we think that they're the main beneficial cell that's in that bone marrow aspirate, but there's so many various cells in there, um, you know, certainly platelets included, that you don't know for sure what's really having the best effect. So there is some, there's some, just on this topic of bone marrow while we're on it, I'll, I'll hit that one more time because there is incredibly high levels of evidence for using bone marrow concentrate into the bone to treat osteoarthritis, which is a little counterintuitive. Most people, when I tell them about this, are confused. But in higher levels of knee osteoarthritis, such as grade three or grade four, those are the higher or worse cases. Um, grade 1 and grade 2 are kind of a milder or lesser cases. But in grade 3 and grade 4, we do have some really nice evidence. That was one of the only good pieces of news that came out in 2020. <laughs> and this was, uh, and, and there was a series of articles that came out from Dr. Philippe Hernigou, who's out of France. He's an orthopedic surgeon there. And he has done lots of research in the area of bone marrow concentrates, stem cells, and their use in orthopedics. He's an orthopedic surgeon who typically works uh, in the knee and in the hip. And he did a nice comparison study in the Journal of International Orthopedics that looked at a 15 years of data comparing patients' outcomes of having their knee replaced on one knee versus the other knee having the bone marrow concentrates injected into the bone. And in another study, he uh, this also came out last year. He did a comparison of patients 15 years out as where they had the bone marrow concentrates into their bone on either side of the arthritic joint um, underneath the cartilage versus if you inject it into the joint. And both of those studies really showed the same outcome, which was at 15 years after treating into the bone, what we call a subchondral or intraosseous within the bone, intraosseous injections of bone marrow concentrates, at 15 years out, from having done one treatment, only 20% of those patients needed to move on to getting their knee replaced. And, and these were patients that were getting their knee replaced at the time of the treatment on the opposite knee, and both knees were equally bad. There was 
basically randomized which knee was going to get the bone marrow and which knee was going to get replaced. So he did a great job of controlling for all those kinds of variables and simply did a knee replacement on one knee or bone marrow into the bone on the other. And 15 years out, the groups were essentially equal in their pain levels, um, but 20% of the group that had the bone marrow into the bone did need to go into knee replacement. But guess what? 20% of the people that had their knee replaced also had to have a secondary surgery or what's called a revision arthroplasty because of complications from their knee replacement. So effectively, 80% of the time, you wouldn't need to have your knee replaced. And 20% of the time, you'll either need to get it replaced or if you choose to have surgery, have another surgery. So given those odds, I, I'm, I'm preferring personally for me and my family to uh, start with the subchondral bone marrow concentrate. So that's that comparison. Then in the other study, he looked at, well, what if you just, instead of putting the bone marrow into the bones, what if you just put it into the joint? It's so much easier. And uh, we can just pop it in there. And compared that to doing the injections into the bone. And what he learned was 15 years out that, well, again, 80% of the subchondral bone marrow injection patients were still doing great with no need for knee replacement. Um, about 20% did move on to that. In the other group where they injected into the joint or intra-articular, that group, 70% of the patients moved on to a knee replacement, and only 30% were able to avoid the knee replacement. And of the groups of that 30% of those patients and the 80% of the other group that did not have a knee replacement, the group that had the subchondral injections were happier, meaning their pain levels were lower and their function scores were higher. <laughs> so it's very clear that treating under the bone um, is superior than treating within the joint with bone marrow stem cells. Wow, that is really amazing information. And I know for me, if I'm considering a knee replacement, I would certainly <laughs> rather try the bone marrow than to go through a surgical <laughs> procedure that's of that level and has so many other associated risk factors just in having surgery by itself, let alone having your a joint replace. So that's outstanding data to, to convey to people. And I think that that's uh, definitely something that everyone, whether they're in the medical profession or you're a, a patient listening to this podcast is definitely something to consider. And oh, yeah, their ears just parked. Up, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know if it were me, I'd be like, you mean there's other options? How many times have patients been told there's no other option? Right. And there are other options. I think that's a huge thing too in the, in the whole general population that because they don't are not really informed about what different options are and they only in their mind think well if I don't get it I got I need to automatically I need to get a steroid injection or you know and or I'm going to have to have surgery and if the steroid doesn't work and they don't really they know a little bit they hear this and that a little bit about regenerative medicine techniques but they really aren't informed enough to even know what kind of questions to ask and then if they're going to a medical provider who doesn't offer that type of um, treatment option then they certainly are not going to promote it in any way. <laughs> and then that we we also see the the uh, providers that do offer, say they offer PRP or or different techniques, but they're not utilizing ultrasound guidance. And I think that that's important to reiterate that there's a huge difference in doing PRP or even a steroid injection without ultrasound guidance versus with it for level of accuracy and, and improved level of outcomes. Would you agree to that? 
Mostly. Um, I, I completely agree with the assertion that ultrasound guidance is critical for regenerative therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, there's just no question about it. And, and we absolutely have evidence that ultrasound guided injections are more accurate. As far as clinical outcomes go, I think in the regenerative um, medicine space, yes, it has to be where we want it to be. But interestingly, there was a study that was conducted um, in steroid injections for knee osteoarthritis, uh, and they were comparing the old generation of doctors that did it by palpation to the young generation of doctors that were using ultrasound guidance to make sure it was in the joint. And in that study, they found 100% of the time that the young bucks and gals were able to get it into the joint, the steroid, and that the old, the older crew was able to get it in the joint around 60 to 65% of the time. But actually, their outcomes were the same and the reason I believe that is the case is that with steroids, it's more of like an anti-inflammatory bomb that's going off in the region. And in fact, it has systemic effects. So when you do an injection with steroids, let's say you put it right next to the joint, it's still going to be taken up by the blood and then taken to the, the synovium of the, or the joint capsule, and it will still have a systemic anti-inflammatory effect in your body. So... I think that's the reason why in that particular study the clinical outcomes didn't seem to matter. But um, you might have, did I have enough time that I could just make a couple more comments about like steroids and PRP? I just thought of two great things. Okay. All right. So um, one study was looking at recurrent steroid injections for knee osteoarthritis. And um, they took a group and either did steroid injection into the knee or saline, so salt water of course, into the knee joint uh, with ultrasound guidance once every three months because that's about how long the steroid would last. And uh, they did that over a two-year period. And what they found was they did an MRI before and they did an MRI after the treatment uh, two years later. What they found was the group that had the steroid injections repeatedly uh, had less cartilage in their knee, meaning their arthritis was worse at the end of the two-year period than the group that had only had the saline. And so it, it leads to lots of questions like, is saline good? Are steroids bad? How does that work? And the general, you know, thinking is that, well, we know that steroids do break down soft tissues and collagen and the cartilage, what's called hyaline cartilage inside of the joint is made of collagen. So it probably is true that steroids weaken that collagen and lead to a further progression of the arthritis over time. And that saline probably dilutes inside of the joint, the inflammation that's in there that's causing the degeneration of the cartilage in the first place. And we haven't really touched on that, but that's why these regenerative treatments work is that the joint is very inflamed, actually. It's a fairly low grade of inflammation, like nothing like a rheumatologic condition, but um, as far as intensity, but very much like a rheumatologic condition as far as like the concept. So it's a really low-grade chronic inflammation that just slowly chews up your cartilage. And if we can do things to intervene in that cycle, not steroids because that seems to worsen the cartilage loss, but maybe PRP or or bone marrow or such, maybe even prolo, maybe we could prolong the life of the joint. And so that's what that bone marrow study showed. There's a a similar study that came out of Spain, and what these uh, doctors did was they looked at PRP into the knee joint. They weren't going into the bone in this case. And they were trying to determine, can we make these knee joints last longer? Very much like Dr. Herniger did with his bone marrow study. 
But instead of looking at 15-year data, they, they only so far have five-year data. And what they learned was that if you repeat the treatment three times, and if you do it before the age of 65, and if you can do them before the arthritis is considered severe, like grade four, then at five years out of initiating treatment, 96% of the time, those patients did not have to move on to a knee replacement. So that was good. That was a good study. It was an outcomes-based study over five years looking at PRP data. What they did learn, though, is that those numbers drop off significantly if you fail to hit all three of those variables. So we try and, we try and treat them repeatedly. We try and treat them early before, you know, the sooner the better is the big message I would give um, because it is a slow, ongoing degenerative process related to inflammation inside of the joint, and these treatments change the biological environment inside of the joint. So they take it from an inflammatory, degradative environment to a more healthy, restorative environment. That's the way to think of that. Okay, so Lori has left. She's going to go get on a plane and she's going to be at your house. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. I'm on my way, Tim. <laughs> I have a very limited amount of time here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yes, oh my that's gosh. me. I'm pointing to me. That's me. I'm going. <laughs> that is super interesting and enlightening. Yeah. Right? I mean, this, the, the data is just astounding. And I'm glad that we have this data because, I mean, obviously our goal here is to improve patient outcomes. So the more data we can get that suggest that some treatments are obviously superior to others is just, I, I, I love it. I love how people just devote their lives to this sort of research and are so passionate about it. And important mm -hmm. for people to understand that there is certain protocols that have been proven to yeah. um, have the best outcomes. So, you know, not it's not a one and done thing. Uh, oftentimes you do have to follow a, a certain protocol to yeah. get the best outcomes. Well, we've talked, right. you know, we've, we've talked extensively about using ultrasound um, first for the diagnosis and then second for the guidance of treatment. Are you also using ultrasound as a me method to monitor effectiveness of the regenerative medicine techniques? Mm. So the question, yeah, I would say as far as a method of measuring the effectiveness of the techniques, yes, to a certain extent. Um, and what I mean by that is I first listen to the patient. So my, my biggest outcome that I pay attention to is what is their pain like and how is their function? And that's the biggest indicator to me of success, of course, right? Because if you, if you couldn't go, if you couldn't go hiking with your grandchildren before and now you can, then that's what my patients usually have as goals. So we have to look at what are their goals. And if it's a, if it's an athlete who likes to ride, you know, 100 mile bike rides, you know, every month through the summer and they couldn't do that and now they can, that's my primary measurement that I go by as far as an outcome. But if they're not doing great, then I absolutely use ultrasound again to look at the joint. And I can think of a number of cases where I've had patients who I have done, you know, pretty intense regenerative treatments on them and they still weren't doing quite right. And so we would scan them and we would see, you know, a rather large diffusion, which is, you know, evidence of inflammation inside of that joint and then kind of make decisions based upon what the reaction of their body was to that treatment. And, yeah, so the, I think the effusion, the, the level of inflammation inside of the joint, right, by looking at the lining of the capsule, what's called the synovium, 
you can see that really calm down and get less vascular, less inflammation. So that's a monitoring device. You can look at the cartilage flex floating around in the joint. We talked about the chondral debris, cartilage debris, um, and then the amount of fluid that's in there. Absolutely, uh, all those things matter. And then, you know, of course, if we're treating other things like a quadricep tendon or a ligament or a meniscus, you can certainly look back at it again over time. But those changes occur slowly is my one caution about this idea, um, particularly in structural uh, substances like the meniscus and the ligaments. It can take an easy 6 to 12 months for those things to begin to look normal again, even though, you know, functionally they have been normal since two months after their treatment. So there's this lag between what our eye can see and what the ultrasound can perceive versus what like microscopically is going on in there at the level of the cell and the inflammation. Um, so yes, I would say is the answer, but with caveats. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking a lot about, um, all of these various factors involved in evaluating and treating, um, knee osteoarthritis. Um, I think, uh, another area that, um, I just like to touch on is that, um, obviously when you're, uh, thinking about integrating ultrasound into your clinical practice and for both diagnostic and, uh, potential interventional techniques that, uh, that everyone recognizes that there is a learning curve in order to be able to become proficient at performing ultrasound. It's not just waving the magic wand across the knee and everything shows up for you that um, there is a, a relatively <laughs> steep learning curve for musculoskeletal ultrasound, recognizing the anatomy and the various scan techniques that we utilize and artifacts that might mimic pathology um, and things like that. So um, do you have any recommendations on on how someone would begin that process of learning how to perform and diagnose MSK ultrasound and the processes that you use maybe to move forward with successfully integrating those into clinical practice. Sure. Yeah, I do have recommendations. And I mean, you can just look at my part, my personal career trajectory as a good example. Mm -hmm. So when I decided that I wanted to do MSK ultrasound in 2007, the first thing after buying the machine I did was attend a course and, and there was one at uh, the Mayo Clinic back then and so we started there and then I did a second course with a, at a different institution under different tutelage um, probably two years later and then a third course I did actually at Gulf Coast um, to, to try and you know look at it from a third point of view and I think that each one I, I had some specific goals of things that I wanted to be able to take away with me is like skills that I knew how to do because the first thing that you recognize when you start to ultrasound the, the orthopedic system is that, okay, this is overwhelming. There's so many structures, you know, there's so much technique involved with just scanning, let alone knowing the anatomy and then being able to see the anatomy under an ultrasound probe and then being able to determine what is normal anatomy versus what's me just not scanning well enough versus what's really a problem with the anatomy. Um, and all of that just takes time. There's, there's no substitute for time in this regard. But absolutely, um, in the people that I've hired into my practice, it's always step one is that we get them out to Gulf Coast ultrasound to, you know, get them in front of uh, some of my colleagues that, that I teach with there. Um, I, I recommend other courses as well. I think the American Medical Society of Sports Medicine does a great job. Um, AIUM uh, is, is a really good institution as well. So, um, you know, everyone's got their favorites, right? Um, 
Tom Clark runs a great course on MSK Ultrasound as well. So, so there's just a lot of great courses that are out there. Some are absolutely better than others. There's no two ways about it. I think the ones that I've mentioned have the highest credibility nationally and probably internationally. Um, and I think that you have to know what your goals are for your practice. And then when you attend one of these courses, make sure that you find an instructor there who's willing to meet those objectives. And, and I think the best way to do that is slide scanning uh, with a good ratio of teachers to students, you know, preferably like maybe three students to one teacher. Um, and then uh, cadaver opportunities for injections that you're going to be doing procedures because you don't want to be practicing on your live patients first. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I remember I had a really uh, strong desire to learn how to do tibial nerve blocks because uh, the first PRP I did ever was on the plantar fascia, and I didn't know how to do a good tibial nerve block at that time, and it wasn't very pleasant for my patients, if I'm being honest. And so I, I, I hoofed it out to Gulf Coast quickly thereafter, and I figured out how to do a tibial nerve block, and everything's been different since for my patients. So I think that's a big part of it is keeping them comfortable because these, these injections are incredibly inflammatory in the early going, and if they're not, if you don't have a patient numbed up well enough, then you're going to lose their confidence quickly and they won't be returning. So I think there's a lot to it. Um, there's, there's a lot of reasons why one should attend courses and one should continue to go back over right. and over at least a couple, three times until you're where you want to be. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And there, like you said, there's no, uh, um, you know, you, ha- you just absolutely have to practice. And even after you've gone to a course, it's, you know, I say the friends and family plan. You don't have to have a real patient. You can scan yourself. You can s- scan your family or your friends and so forth just to get your practice. But you just have to do it over and over and over again and and um, just have the the uh, commitment to learning something new. It's always difficult for, to integrate something new into your life and make changes, right? Anybody likes to have to work hard, but, you know, that you're, you're an attestment to, you know, in your practice and the, and the, um, opportunities that you offer to your patients that by integrating something like musculoskeletal ultrasound into your clinical practice that you're, you're able to provide so many more, um, options for your patients and, um, they're happy. And if they're happy, you're happy, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. That's right. exactly right. That's my, that's my whole reason for being out here is just to try and make the world a little better place one person at a time mm-hmm. because, you know, if we can get, if we can get whoever that person is feeling, you know, 50 to a hundred percent better about their problem, then they're going to be more likely to be a happier person and better able to contribute to society and just continue to be the person that they're supposed to be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, this is my little one part of that. You know, we, mm-hmm. have, we have a lot of other professionals that help in other ways, but this is my, my calling, if you will, and uh, what drives me and keeps me passionate. No, well, it definitely shows through your uh, patient care as well as uh, working with you as one of our faculty. Um, your passion definitely comes through in your presentations and your interaction with the with the uh, participants, and and that's that's really compelling to um, anyone that you work with. That that really motivates and helps them to see that you know this really can happen, and I can do this. It just you have to you know take it one step at a time. Right. So, mm-hmm. so right. Um, well, we're about to run out of time, but before we conclude, do you have any um, anything else that you'd like to discuss regarding our episode today? 
you know, I, I, I really don't feel like we left many stones unturned. Uh, my goals were met as far as getting the data out there. I mm-hmm. think, um, you know, it's good, it's good for you to be doing a podcast like this that gives us a platform to just spread the good news, um, that there really is high level evidence for multiple kinds of treatments for knee osteoarthritis and, um, you know, and then just leave people with the message that, you know, it, it is truly, it is a biological condition. It's not just a wear and tear sort of thing. Um, and that biological treatments are important. The earlier, the better to try and slow down, you know, that inflammatory process, slow down that cartilage loss, because once it's gone, it's gone. We get one set of cartilage. It's one of the, it's one of the most precious things that, that we have in our bodies that helps us to keep mobile is, you know, healthy hyaline cartilage in each of our joints. And when it, when it goes, it goes and then you're stuck with joint replacements and things like that, which are decent, um, but nothing quite like the original. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think my, my big hope is that people will learn that you can hold on to your original joints (laughs) for longer. Um, and that there is good evidence to support that assertion. Um, and it doesn't have to be incredibly painful and it doesn't have to be incredibly expensive. Um, you know, the, our ability to get this done is getting better and better and, uh, and the price just keeps coming down. So it would just be an encouragement to people to uh, take control of their health in that regard. Absolutely. Well, that, um, and you did an awesome job of discussing all that very clearly. And, um, so, uh, we are very excited about our insightful discussion, uh, regarding that MSK ultrasound and, how it pertains to knee osteoarthritis. And so we definitely want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your experience, not only with the medical providers listening, but also for our patients who may be out there as well and uh, possibly not even aware of alternative options when it comes to dealing with knee osteoarthritis. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. We'd also like to thank our listeners for being with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Sonography Lounge podcast and follow follow us on social media so you don't miss any episodes. Um, Also, you can check out GCUS.com. We've got some upcoming musculoskeletal ultrasound courses. So check those out, and we'd be more than happy to talk to you on the phone if you have questions. So everybody have a great day, and happy scanning. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take good care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Sonography Lounge. Don't forget, if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, at Sonography Lounge, and Twitter, at Sonography LNG. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, feel free to send an email to us at sonographylounge at gmail.com. Have a great week and scan, scan, scan.